Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network series. I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of Jerusalem Unplugged podcast, and today for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Professor Hanan Ahmad. She's currently Professor and Director of Middle East Studies at Texas Christian University. She is the author of a previous book, Industrial Sexuality, Gender, Urbanization, and Social Transformation in Egypt, published in 2016. But today, we are going to discuss her latest work, Unknown Past. Laila Murad, The Jewish Muslim Star of Egypt, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. This book is not just a biography of Laila Murad, who was once the highest paid uh, actress and singer in Egypt, but this is a book about uh, sort of gender. This is a book about uh, Egypt and cultural history of Egypt, but also uh, she discusses uh, politics, religious affiliations, religious relation, and the figure of Laila Murad is just at the center of all of this network of different narratives. But first of all, Hanan, welcome. Thank you. Now, the first question I want to ask, if you can tell us a little bit more about your background and also a little bit more about your previous work and how you came to work on Laila Murad. Um... My name is Hannah Ahmed. Uh, I was born and raised in Egypt, and I studied journalism in undergrad, and I worked as a professional journalist in Egypt quite a bit of time before I came to the academia in the United States. Um, I started my academic career with deep interest in the class versus community questions, which actually uh, developed into uh, break down into more uh, categories, particularly uh, gender and sexuality. Um, most of my academic research focuses on working classes, popular culture, uh, sexuality, and, and gender, particularly in these working classes milieu. Um, I'm always obsessed with the question that how the Egyptian society reached the point where it is now particularly when it comes to questions about public morality, uh, gender relations, um, class relations, uh, concepts of sexuality, what is accepted, what is not, uh, etc. So probably most of my publications and research very much in one way or another uh, tries to untangle the roots of how the Egyptian society reached that point where it is now. Now, let's start talking about the book. So, Unknown Past, 
is not a biography of Laila Murad, even though, in a sense, it may be read as one. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about the methodological approach followed and also the sources used for uh, this book? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, yes, I didn't want to do a biography on Laila Murad, although I acknowledge that uh, she deserves a biography in her own merit. Uh, but I wanted actually to use her uh, life and career as a lens to examine several issues um, and provide a narrative for the Egyptian society and its evolution throughout the 20th century. And Laila Murad's life, actually, interestingly enough, would provide uh, a great individual life through which we can discuss many of the issues and themes I'm interested in. Um, in that sense, actually, she's unique, not only because she's a famous uh, actress and a star and beloved star, but because she faced and encountered many issues that the Egyptian society has grappled with and is still grappled with until today. Uh, some of these issues is, uh, as I always uh, interested in, uh, gender relations and in its complication actually, or intersection with uh, gender, uh, religion, uh, class. And you add to all these uh, the question that she experienced all complications that uh, relate to these issues under the light of fame uh, in public. So in some sense, she's very unique that, I mean, all Egyptian women faced many of the issues that she faced, like uh, working, uh, how to be a working mother or how to be a working wife. Uh, some women would be the relationship of uh, like interfaith marriage, for example. Uh, some uh, Egyptian women would face the question of being a single mother or uh, had to face the challenge that the father would not recognize the parenthood of a child. So these are issues that many Egyptian women face, but not face them together at the same time, which Laila Murad did. And add to that that she was going through all this uh, while people are very much scrutinizing her daily life as a star. Now, I found the idea to use gossip magazines extremely brilliant and relevant, and this is why one of your main uh, sources for this book. And I was curious about uh, your experience uh, digging into this material. Where did you find it? How did you find it? And also, why do you think many scholars in general reject this kind of material? Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, I grew up, of course, like many people uh, among your listeners. Uh, we like to read this material. Uh, I mean, uh, particularly teens, and it is said that it's mostly feminized readership, although I, I would say in the context of Egypt, it is not a feminized readership. Uh, men and women read this material. Uh, it's available and its readership is wide and broad. Uh, it goes beyond the level of education because my educated people can consume them. And I would say actually even uh, illiterate can consume them, particularly uh, in its use of uh, big pictures. Um, my thought is like these 
material, although it was uh, treated as trivial or not important, actually it's a very important source of studying uh, and also the redeployment of uh, popular discourses uh, about gender, sexuality, morality, uh, etiquette, uh, fashion, so many things, uh, actually. So these material, even if pe- even people who read it as kind of sort of passing time in their trip in trains or uh, while they are waiting in the barber shop or uh, doctor's clinics, but it's still, it, uh, it's like commercial cinema too. It has that kind of sort of uh, impact. And actually, when you take it to the Egyptian context, you I found, um, because it's, it's not well archived, so I had to use uh, personal collections of friends who were known to be good collectors, and some of them were actually scholars. And also I had to browse uh, used bookstores uh, in Cairo, in my own hometown in Mahalla, and in actually in Morocco, and also friends helped me in Beirut. I found some of these uh, material people binded them. Actually, if uh, if if I, I might even grab uh, a volume to show you, just to show that people cared about these publications. Uh, it was they didn't treat it as just uh, this visible. Uh, piece of freedom that you can throw before you leave the bus. So that thick volume, actually, is El Kawakib magazine, or uh, it's a, the most widely circulated celebrity uh, ma- magazine in Arabic. Um, it's 1954 and 1953. So people actually who collected this material, they, or they read the material, some of them cared to uh, preserve them, to use them to decorate their own bookshelves, etc. So it it's, it's an important source of uh, learning the popular discourse, what people cared about, what people debated, uh, etc. But from the uh, like the kind of sort of the standard point of view that this is uh, silly material that doesn't have much value, doesn't have it doesn't raise the grand ideas about like Egyptian identity or the the nature of the Egyptian culture or these kind of sort of or nationalism these big questions. So it is not important material. Thus, they don't archive them. So the National Archive down in, in Cairo, they actually, they, they are very, in addition to little problem, actually using um, the National Library, many of many friends and colleagues who have tried to use uh, that library, they know lots of problems. But when it comes to um, celebrity and gossip publications, it is very, very poor. Uh, and it is the same also in academic uh, libraries, uh, in North America, you can't really find, like almost all academic uh, libraries, particularly that's associated with academic units to study the Middle East uh, or to do Arabic studies, you find Al uh, Hilal, the cultural uh, magazine, you find Al Muqtatif, uh, but you don't find Al Kawakib, you don't find Al Shabaka, you don't find Al uh, Mawaid, these uh, gossip material. However, so somehow I think that also contributed to um, for historians not to use this material very very much. Uh, they are not 
simply they are not available, probably people, it's easy to be overlooked. However, now uh, I can't claim that I'm the first to use them. Actually, now more colleagues, uh, history, as you know, you are a historian. So uh, it's, it's a relatively uh, conservative field. We are one of the latecomers to cultural studies comparing to life course anthropology, etc. So, but now actually you find like many colleagues, uh, the, the, those who studied um, history of Egypt or the kind of sort of uh, approach of history of Egypt from the point of view of cultural studies, uh, raise the question about consumerism or um, class or um, uh, gender. They, they very much used some of this material. Uh, I would say, for example, Raymond book about uh, department store used them. Um, Lucy Rizovas used them. Uh, the colleague who used them on its own white, uh, its own uh, merit or um, outright were not really historian, but they did historical studies like Walter Armbrust, of course, and um, Robin Dovatry. They used uh, this material. Uh, so I think this is kind of sort of the nature of evolution of history as a field and its uh, consideration for cultural studies uh, to, to, to pay attention to this. So I think more and more we'll find uh, this material to be archived and more and more utilized. Probably the more than having an access to this material, the challenge will be methodological. Uh, like any other um, source, how to read against the grain, uh, how you use them to answer your questions that actually is not necessarily, um, at, at, if you read them at its own face value, etc. Some historians made the point that in the future, future historians will have to uh, uh, read uh, tweets, so they have to access Twitter, and you know get all of the historical information from there. So. I guess it's about time for us historians too to access that uh, the kind of uh, magazines and press and uh, try to you know make the best out of it. I, that I, brings... This is a very relevant observation, actually. And um, now, um, uh, Ted Swedenberg actually raises a question about the alternative archives, and he's not the only one, but uh, we. Now we, we have to, we use these uh, precarious uh, collections that's available on eBay, uh, on YouTube, on uh, Facebook. Yes, we we already doing it, and I think we'll do it more and more. The 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 thing is like how relevant the material you have to to your research question, and um, it it is not like it, it's not like you have to use them. And also, it is not, uh, you can ignore them. No, you're right. You cannot ignore them, particularly if they report about gossip and rumors, which must be treated as gossip and rumors. But yet, those gossip and rumors may have consequences. And so it's important to get a sense of uh, what it's all about. I have a question about, uh, again, still talking about sort of uh, the structure of the book, I'm curious about the narrative style. Now, you mix together the story of Laila Murad, the one of Egypt, and you discuss very much the questions of modernity, sexual relations, freedom of religion, and also Egypt in the wider world. And I was fascinated by the fact that you actually were able to connect all of these uh, 
different aspects. And so I was wondering, can you tell us how you thread all of these narratives together? Actually, Leila Murad's life did, for, did it for me. Uh, her lifespan, she was born 1918, and she passed away in 1999. And she's still a big star in Egypt. Uh, she's still popular. People still listen to her, watch her movies, uh, and, uh, and write, read and write and talk about her. So that long uh, lifespan and afterlife uh, means actually during her lifetime, uh, she experienced lots of uh, sociopolitical changes. And um, either in her movies or in her life, she had to deal with many issues that the Egyptian society, broadly speaking, was grappling with. So each episode of her life and career Kind of sort of, uh, it, it was not really difficult for me to, I, I, I wouldn't say like it was my work. It, it's actually her life that gave me that thread. Uh, would resonate with one particular theme. Uh, for example, um, becoming uh, a female star in certain time and the question of middle class respectability. Uh, the role of technology, new uh, novel technology uh, in the entertainment industry. Then the 1952, uh, that kind of sort of uh, big landmark event, uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict and uh, the question of normalizing with Israel. Um, then uh, her own uh, personal life, how it is entangled with uh, the free officers, this new ruling elite that controlled the, the, the state and the Nasrist state itself as uh, a dominant and hegemonic regime, 1950s and 1960s. And then the, 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 um, the peace uh, treaties with Israel, between Israel and Egypt first and then with uh, the Oslo Accord that unfortunately did not bring peace to the Palestinian. Uh, and again, the, uh, her afterlife, the, 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 her legacy that's very much well and living among the Egyptians that also gave me a lens to see how the Egyptians like to talk about themselves through uh, their talk about Laila Murad or how they employ Laila Murad in their own uh, talk to kind of sort of um, redeploy certain ideology or certain um, thoughts about themselves. This brings me to ask the first question about Laila Murad. So you already mentioned when she was born. Uh, now, Laila Murad started as a singer, then became an actress. Can you tell us, first of all, who was Laila Murad in general? And how did she become a star? And also why, perhaps? Um, so her father was uh, a well-known uh, singer. He, uh, I'm, I'm talking about the peak of his uh, career. Actually, was um, the the nationalist milieu that the entire Egyptian population were experiencing with the 1919 revolution. Uh, he performed uh, a very important play, although um, was not very popular at the time. Uh, the the great Egyptian composer, nationalist composer, Said Darwish, composed the music for him, uh, the play of Ashra Tayyiba. Uh, so her father was a singer, which actually, uh, not a big surprise that she inherited that, the vocal talent. And she was not alone. She and many of her siblings had that uh, vocal talent. And uh, her father was not the first vocalist also in the family. It seems like good voice was... Um, something genetically uh, in the family. <laughs> um, 
her father um, came to a tour in the in North America during the Great Depression, 1927, and he stayed quite a bit of time. So he went home by 1930 or so, penniless. Uh, the family in Egypt, he had many, many children. I said Laila was, uh, was the oldest uh, daughter, uh, but he had many children. So when he went home uh, penniless, and after the family actually struggled a lot while the, the, the breadwinner, the father, Zaki Murad, was abroad, uh, and they were waiting for him to come back with something. Um, and also his own singing career was kind of sort of about, it, it already stopped. Uh, the singing career was overshadowed by Muhammad Abdel Wahab, the superstar of the time. Uh, musical plays was not in the market anymore. It was mostly individual uh, singing. And of course, he started to notice the talent of his daughter. Uh, she talks a lot about how th- making a decision uh, to accept that that young teen will be an entertainer uh, was accepted uh, by, by her father and the rest of the family. She talks a lot about it. And I take that talk actually as a way of um, the question of res- respectability. Even when she became uh, a big star, she wanted to uh, uh, highlight that we were middle class, we were respectable middle class. And the question of a woman or a girl to become an entertainer was not a sip of water. Uh, definitely, she benefited uh, from the previous generation and the contemporaries who like the, the, the change in the entertainment industry that uh, made someone like Bahiga Hafiz, Bahiga Hanim Hafiz, who comes from aristocratic background, became uh, a musician, uh, an actress, a filmmaker, also, someone like Umm Kulsum, who came from uh, the countryside, very conservative, religious con- conservative, but became uh, a singer. So there are changes in the industry that allowed respectable uh, women to become entertainers. I would say there are things that played very well in her side, particularly the technical novelties, uh, the microphone. She had relatively beautiful but soft voice that um, before the microphone, actually the strong voice was important. Like you need to make everybody uh, hear you. But with, her, with the microphone uh, that amplified the flaws of strong voices, but actually amplified the beauty of the soft voices. So that, was, uh, that worked very well for her. Also the national radio. Uh, worked for her. Uh, we know that Egypt experienced uh, radios as station owned by individuals, and the situation was very chaotic until uh, 1934. The Egyptian government decided to uh, to ban all private uh, stations and to launch the national radio. And the director of the national radio recruited her to perform every Tuesday. Uh, to perform a concert every Tuesday. So her voice became uh, like known nationally uh, from Alexandria to Aswan, not only known for those who attended her concerts or private uh, parties wherever, uh, whenever she performed. Along with uh, celebrity publications and uh, popular press, 
that made her, uh, not only her, but her generation also, their faces are known to people. So uh, that, that she was very lucky in that sense. Add to that the biggest uh, innovation that worked very well with, in her, um, for her, which is uh, cinema, sound cinema, uh, musical cinema. Uh, the Egyptian, the, I would argue that sound cinema arrived the Egypt singing. Uh, the second uh, sound movie was, uh, was a musical and it proved to be very popular. And Muhammad Abdul Wahab, who was a superstar uh, composer and singer at the time, started to work in movies. And he always wanted to introduce um, a singer who could act or an actress who could sing. And her father, Zaki Murad, who was until this point her uh, manager, uh, insisted to introduce her to Abdul Wahab. Abdul Wahab was very well convinced that uh, to give her uh, the leading part in uh, his movie, uh, Yahya al-Hub. <laughs> interestingly, the filmmaker, uh, Muhammad Karim, who has uh, great respect in, uh, among Egyptians as a pioneer filmmaker, great filmmaker, etc., and he directed all movies of Muhammad Abdul Wahab, did not like her. I think I, I argue actually he didn't like any woman. <laughs> he didn't like. He was very um, uh, Western oriented. He valued everything Western. Looked down at everything Egyptian. Uh, I, I look at him actually uh, through the gender lens. I call him macho and actually misogynist. So his he, it's not only he didn't like her. He mistreated her as he mistreated. Almost all female stars worked with him. However, the movie became a huge success. And gradually, she would uh, focus on her cinema career. So she would become an exceptional uh, singing actress. Uh, not just an actress, not just an, uh, a singer. Of course, there are things that worked very well for her that um, she, she's beautiful in the screen, which is not the same case for Umm Kulthum, for example. Umm Kulthum was relatively advanced in age, so she didn't make many movies, uh, and she didn't have that appearance that would make her... Uh, people would go listen to her, but she was not like convincing uh, as an actress or as a movie star. Now, in the first two chapters, which are called The School Girl and the Country Girl, you discuss mostly Lila's work as a singer and actress, and you already summarized that uh, uh, with some, some of the important details. Um, you're also connecting the dots with uh, contemporary Egyptian society, politics, and religious media. And here I want to bring the question of uh, her Jewish identity. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Jewishness and how she experienced being a Jew uh, and Jewish in Egypt, particularly, you know, growing up and making her first steps into her uh, entertainment career? Particularly in that respect, it was almost the norm that minority women uh, would be the major entertainers. Uh, and when we look at 19th century, uh, in the middle of kind of sort of segregation, you find uh, 
in private parties like wedding, etc., you find uh, those Muslim uh, awalim or singers, they are not mingling, they are singing for a women's section. When theater arrived in Egypt, so um, you find, and, and which highlighted the visibility of uh, performers, you find Muslim women were way more reluctant to engage. Uh, and most stars, female stars, late 19th century, early 20th century, who would be on the stage were uh, minority women, uh, Syrians or Jews. Uh, and then gradually Muslim women entered uh, the field. Uh, Fatma Rushdie, who started as an actress when she was a child, actually she would perform male, child male uh, characters. Um, Umm Kulsum, for example, again, uh, when she started to, when she came from uh, Mansura to perform in Cairo, she was dressed like a boy. Uh, but gradually uh, it became more accepted and more considered respectable to be a visible uh, woman performer. So what makes Leila Murad actually exception, not her Jewishness, actually, uh, that among Jewishness, that she was the biggest star among uh, coming from Jewish background for her time. Um, I don't want to say, so it, it was not really a question that uh, you have a beloved uh, Jewish star. Her father was uh, was Jewish singer and was uh, beloved. So it was not, but actually to reach her uh, level of fame and popularity, she was, uh, in that respect, she was different from the previous generation of uh, female minorities, female minority women who uh, became entertainers, never reached that her level of fame and popularity. Probably her Jewishness would, I, I'm like Egyptians narrating her life they, or, or even narrating their own history, they like to talk about uh, the monarchic period or before 1952 with great deal of nostalgia to say um, the Egyptian society was an incredibly tolerant towards uh, Jews and foreigners. And they talk about this in a way to lament their contemporary uh, situation. And actually, this is not very accurate, um, uh, the, the way Egyptians like to look at this period. I don't see it accurate. Uh, even Laila Murad, despite, uh, as I said, it was quite the norm. It was not uh, an issue. But uh, occasionally, she would face some comments about her, uh, negative comments about her Jewishness. That was underplayed in uh, the, the narrative that's circulating among Egyptians. Um, and it was mentioned actually in the 1950s uh, that uh, Zaki Murad, one of the intellectuals of the monarchy period, uh, made a comment that uh, she's stingy uh, and she needs, she, she needs to stop uh, uh, like singing the repertoire and sing her own, things like that. That was reported in 1950. Supposedly, that comment was made uh, in early 1930s when she started her career, which was true. She actually relayed on the repertoire uh, of uh, late 19, uh, 19th century and early 20th century in her performance. And this was a mix of two things, to show her talent that she can uh, perform sophisticated pieces. And also, it's, it's a cheaper 
uh, she couldn't afford to buy uh, new lyrics and new comp- composition. Uh, something that's is different from um, producing music in the West, that Egyptian singers, you can be a singer, but you are not the composer and definitely don't write the lyrics. So you had to buy uh, the, the music and the lyrics. So singing uh, the, the repertoire was, was convenient. Uh, for her at the beginning. But uh, again, like, uh, he was making reference to her Jewishness uh, or, like, uh, importing all these, some of the European anti-Semitism, which was not the the norm, actually, I would say, in the Egyptian society. Other thing about the narrative, Laila Murad's always used to show how uh, Egyptians were tolerant uh, towards Jews and foreigners, I'm against that narrative first. Uh, Laila Murad is Egyptian. So, uh, as many other Jews. So, when you put uh, Egyptian Jews in the basket with foreigners, actually you other them rather than you talk about them as Egyptians. Uh, And also for um, foreigners, having good life in Egypt was not something by the choice of Egyptians or out of their tolerance. Actually, it was something racist against them. Uh, The majority of those foreigners lived in Egypt uh, protected uh, with the uh, occupation forces, by the occupation forces. And they they leveraged the the capitulation system that gave them extra rights against the Egyptian. It was a racist system against the Egyptian. It's not a sign of uh, tolerance of Egyptians towards foreigners. Actually, it is a sign of um, the, the racist system of, the, of colonialism itself against indigenous people, and indigenous people here are the Egyptians. I'm, I'm sorry if, if the question took us beyond, or my answer took us beyond the question you were raising. No, actually, I was going to ask you something about identities, and you already answered that question. So now I want to ask something about, uh, again, you know, uh, personal life. Um, in the first chapter of a book, which is called Adam and Eve, you talk about uh, Lila's Murad's relationship with her husband, which was not an easy one. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this relationship, how it came about, and how essentially marriage and married life worked for her. But there's also an important episode, which is very important in Lila's life, but also in sort of how Lila is understood even nowadays, the question of a conversion to Islam. So if you can also tell us a little bit more about this episode. Actually... um... In 1940s or in her, before 1952, the question of religion was uh, very important in personal life. And as a sign of the, the role of the state in people's personal life, because marriage is not just a relationship between the couple. It's a relationship regulated by the state and the state's law. And this is where and when uh, her religion actually mattered uh, at that point. Uh, It is not her career. It is not her public life. It is her personal life that uh, where religion matter. Uh, Her first husband, Anwar Wagdi, was uh, a very well-known actor, incredibly talented 
and uh, he was trying to make himself a producer. Uh, many people think that he became a star only because he got married to Laila Murad, which is not true. He was a star, actually, already a star. And he wanted to invest some of his surplus income to become uh, a producer. So he chose the most successful uh, star at the time, which is Laila Murad. That was uh, a guaranteed ticket for him for uh, economic success for his production. Add to that that it seemingly he's personally wanted to play the leading role uh, before her, to co-star with her, which he didn't get a chance to do previously. Previously, he appeared with her in few uh, movies, but in the second male role, not in the leading role. So this was the chance, since he will be uh, the the producer, the fa- the the one who is going to provide the finance for the movie. Uh, while they are doing the first uh, film, if, um, the the director uh, passed away untimely, untimely, and he stepped up to direct the movie. So the first movie together, he be, uh, he's he's a star, but he became the co-star with Laila Murad and the producer and the filmmaker. And he, uh, now on, actually, he would show how incredibly multi-talented he was. But during that film, they fell in love and they got married. He was Muslim. So probably the religion, the religious difference between them, personally, was not such a question uh, in their love story. But when you uh, make that uh, relationship official through documentation of marriage, it means that the state is part of it. So um, the Islamic law, Sharia law, that uh, regulates uh, personal affairs, um, including marriage and inheritance, uh, would allow Muslim men to marry a kitabi woman. A kitabi here, she uh, would marry a Muslim, a Christian, or a Jewish woman. So uh, while actually the vice versa is not allowed, Muslim woman has to marry only Muslim men, a Muslim man. But... When I see actually their marriage document, um, it is there are two things. First, the state, since early 20th century, started to have a heavier hand in regulating the marriage relationship. So before marriage in Islam is a contract, is a contract that the couple sign. And traditionally, the couple would put in the contract uh, their conditions or whatever they agreed on. Uh, Like up to late 19th century, you find a marriage contract wherein the man would commit himself to buy buy certain uh, clothing every year to his wife. Or he allows his wife to leave the house to visit her family without his permission every time. Things like that. Whatever they agreed on. So it was kind of sort of uh, personalized or individualized marriage contract. But early 20th century, the state prepared that form, the printed form. And all what the couple would do is to put their uh, own inf- uh, information. Of course, it's still, according to the Islamic law, uh, the wife could still add the conditions she wanted, but it is less, it becomes less noticed that you can, because you have to write it down, you add it. It's not like there's particular space telling, hey, this is what the state wanted to know, but anything you want to add, there is no something like that. So more women or more couple couples start to miss that chance. 
to individualize the marriage form. Then the second issue is the, there is a particular form prepared for interfaith marriage that is not the regular, the regular form. So the form that Laila Murad uh, signed is prepared by the state for her as a non-Muslim woman getting married to a Muslim man. And as expected, uh, the state was giving more rights to the Muslim uh, man. He's a man and he's a Muslim. <laughs> and uh, for example, there are certain, like toward the end of the marriage contract, you find that the the Ma'zun, the, the state uh, religious uh, official who would uh, make the marriage contract, made sure that this is how it stipulates, like made sure that the wife know that the Islamic Sharia law gives this certain rights to the husband. So these certain rights is like his he can get uh, multi wives without her permission, up to four. Uh, he can divorce her without her uh, consent. Uh, the children would follow his faith, not her, not hers. They don't inherit from one another because uh, due to the religious differences, etc. These conditions actually are taken from the the most patriarchal interpretation of the Islamic Sharia. Because and it is not mentioned in the regular marriage contract. Uh, don't mention that uh, the Egyptian society was not very much into uh, polygamy, and even at this time, polygamy was frowned upon more and more. So why you want to make sure that uh, that uh, Muslim husband uh, has a free hand and the wife already submitted to that uh, conservative principle that uh, she can't ask her husband if he takes uh, more wives? So... I see that uh, Layla actually rushed to sign that marriage contract without consulting a lawyer, which I think this is out of her norm. Uh, at that point, she's a uh, very professional, very experienced. Uh, she has her own lawyers. And even those who signed as witnesses of the marriage contract, none of uh, those witnesses were not from her side. Uh, traditionally, or the social norm in Egypt, um, as I mentioned, in Islam, marriage is a contract, and you need uh, two male uh, witnesses or one male, two females. And uh, the the Hanafi school of law that's uh, followed in Egypt would actually allow the Kitabi wife, the non-Muslim wife, to have witnesses who are not Muslims. So she, and traditionally, those witnesses would come from one from each family or, or, or one from the, the, the wife. So her father did not represent her, which was a social norm, actually, uh, until today, particularly for the first marriage for women. So her, her father was not there. She represented herself. And uh, while actually her uh, brothers or any other males in her family could be witnesses. None of them signed the contract. So, uh, and this contract was signed in the government office in the at the court. That is a particular office for interfaith marriage. So, I think she did not she did not give herself a chance to uh, have counseling with a lawyer. 
otherwise, they could have told her, yes, you will see that and you can do this and you can do that. So she signed out of love or happiness. Uh, and I, I don't blame her. Anwar Wagdi was very attractive. <laughs> uh, and obviously, uh, they had strong love. But the state actually is the party in this relationship that started to take from her rights and to give it to uh, the other party in the relationship, the husband. And here what the state take from her, take from her as a woman and and take from her as a non-Muslim. So here her weakness uh, is double fault in the relationship to her husband because of the state's power very much. They had very successful uh, professional career together. Uh, the, the movies they made together, uh, about eight movies, they are all still popular classics. Uh, he was really a good filmmaker, very generous producer. Uh, he reframed her uh, in a way that no one else had done uh, since uh, she worked with Tugu Mizrahi, uh, a very important filmmaker. And I highly recommend uh, the book of my uh, colleague, Debra Starr, about Tugu Mizrahi. I, but in personal level, they had very difficult relationship. You can see this relationship difficult because you have two people who are equal uh, in, in talent, in career, in profession. Uh, in some sense, this problem of working wife it was a prevalent problem probably until today uh, when the wife is working and making money and can be independent. And But you add to this uh, the jealous husband, you add to this that all these disagreements were under the light of fame. Uh, you add to this that both of them actually manipulated the public opinion and used celebrity and gossip publications to win uh, popular support so they got married they got divorced and remarried one another about three times. And I would say it was never mentioned during this disagreement her uh, her faith issue. But I think uh, part of documenting her conversion to Islam was that particular issue. And here it for me it is very important to make distinction between Im- converting to Islam as a personal uh, relationship between one and their God, and then publicizing that conversion that actually changes the relationship between one and their community, and documenting that marriage, or uh, sorry, that conversion in state documents, which changes the one's relation with the state. So... I take her word. She said she converted uh, 1946, but she didn't uh, publicize it because her father was uh, dying and she didn't want to upset him. Uh, Her father actually embraced his Jewishness uh, to the very end of his life. Uh, I take it that this is her personal choice to change her relation, the way that she worshiped God. But But documenting this conversion was 1947. So this something to do with her mutual dis- financial disagreement with her uh, Muslim husband. I say that she wanted to kind of sort of uh, document that marriage. So the state that's giving more rights to the Muslim husband would 
give more rights to the husband, but kind of sort of make it one fold uh, rather than double fold against her. And then the third step that publicizing her conversion, which was 1948, and definitely this has something to do with uh, the first war in Palestine. And she was very much uh, telling the entire community where she is from uh, not only the the Arab-Israeli conflict, but she was confirming or wanted to eliminate any doubt where she is from this issue. And this is where I want to bring politics in, because basically between 1948 and 1952, uh, we have a number of uh, very important events unfolding in in the region. And you already mentioned 1948, uh, the war in Palestine, which eventually led to the creation of the State of Israel. And also in 1952, we have the the coup staged by the three officers that uh, essentially removed the king and established a new regime in Egypt. And I was wondering, how did these events uh, affect Lila's uh, life and career? And also, if you can tell us a little bit more about the rumors that spread in relation to uh, Lila's, uh, again, alleged support uh, to the newly created uh, State of Israel. So, her uh, publicizing her con- conversion in 1948, uh, I don't want to say it was not a big deal, but uh, showed that the Arab-Israeli conflict until this point had nothing to do with her uh, personal or public life. Uh, probably the issue would come uh, with the rumors that uh, spread out in Syria, and based on these rumors that uh, the Syrian government made a decision to ban uh, Leila Murad's work in September 1952. This was summer 1952, is like big deal in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt. Uh, the free officers took over uh, the country in July. And the Syrians uh, announced their decision to uh, ban Daila Murad, uh, justifying it that she visited Israel and she donated money. Uh, this rumors actually absolutely uh false as as far as evidence available to us, as far as the Egyptian investigation of the issue, the free officers actually invested a great deal of uh, this issue and eventually they uh, cleared the hair completely. At the time, she was abroad. She was in Europe uh, when uh, the the free officer uh, took over the country and also uh, when the uh, rumors spread out. And it was not like one trip. She was going back and forth, I think, because she, she had, uh, this is a kind of interesting um, issue that becomes very, the chronology is very confusing. She was uh, do, shooting for a film, uh, the, product, the producer of Salah Nasr and directed by Yusuf Shaheen. And they wanted to finish the movie, so they push it into movie theaters and the uh, the prime time of Eid, like the Muslim holiday was coming. At the same time, Anwar Wagdi, her first husband, by then actually they just separated for the third time, their third divorce. 
that uh, it means they can't marry again unless she marries another one and then the marriage would fall through so she can go back to the first husband. This is an Islamic law thing. But uh, Anwar Wagdi, after the third divorce, uh, was very sick. Uh, he had a terminal uh, health condition uh, in his kidney, and he was receiving treatment in Europe. So she actually was visiting him. Uh, so, so she was between uh, visiting him and uh, shooting the movie when these events were, were happening. When the rumors broke out, she would, she and Anwar Wagdi, they were both so scared to come back to Egypt. Of course, she made statements in uh, the Arab and the international press that these are false rumors, uh, and she would repeat over and over, I'm Arab, I'm Muslim, I'm Egyptian, uh, why should I have any sympathy with a state that I don't relate to? I, um, and the Syrians who made the decision, uh, actually, uh, their, one of their ministers or the, the head of the regio, the national regio, came to Cairo uh, at the same time and mentioned that, okay, it is not our job to produce evidence. It is her job to produce, to counter evidence. So it, it's something that made me reflect a lot on the question of normalization or banning a relationship with Israel. I am anti-normalization personally, and I'm completely convinced that um, if normal of having relationships with Israel would hurt the Palestinians, don't do it. And I am also with the BDS. So I completely understand the reason why the Arabs from the beginning boycotted the state of Israel and they didn't want anyone to deal with Israel. But when I reflect on how the Arab regimes applied these policies, it, it is really sad, at least when it is used against Arab individuals. Because I would say uh, it's not only Laila Murad's case, but Laila Murad's case is the biggest. It was punishing the Arab individual with no evidence whatsoever. And whenever that individual proved that they didn't do it, they didn't deal with Israel, or they didn't support Israel, or whatever, even when they proved that, the Arab state that banned them didn't bother to say, we are sorry. (laughs) So the Syrians never apologized, never produced evidence, they let Laila Murad over and over prove her innocence. And they never apologized and they never actually um, withdrew the ban decision. We can say that uh, Syria was very unstable at the time and they had more bigger issues to take care about rather than uh, Laila Murad's issue. But at the same time, they never made any decision to clear her, which was not a big deal. I mean, it it wouldn't take much work. During the unification between Egypt and Syria, uh, Egyptian officials, uh, Egyptian military uh, intelligence, etc., they had access to all Syrian records. And obviously, um, either they cared or they didn't, nobody came across anything. But they didn't pressure the Syrians either to withdraw such a decision, it kind of dissolved itself by itself. So 
the Syrians and other Arab states would use boycotting Israel as a way for their own regional power and regional conflict for domestic consumption with no seriousness, actually, of studying the question, how you, you make a case, and if your evidence are wrong, how you drop the case to, to, to achieve the ultimate goal, which is you support Palestinians. So actually, these decisions of uh, punishing individuals for dealing with Israel made Arabs or made people who uh, embrace these policies kind of sort of anti-Semitic. Or it's easy to be accused. I'm not saying they are anti-Semitic. It's easy to be accused because there is no really seriousness. There is no actually explanation even what is the philosophy and behind uh, what is the cause, why this cause is noble and without hurting individuals. So Layla Murad is the biggest case with that. So when she was accused uh, by the Syrians, she was afraid to come back to Egypt until uh, the new regime in Egypt, the free officers, uh, screened her bank, her bank records, screened her uh, passports, proved that she never went to Israel, she never donated money to Israel. So she came back with Anwar Wagdi in October. Uh, 1952, and together they had, um, of course, now they had the back of the new regime, but they had a systematic uh, publicity campaign to show up as a couple, a loving couple, and to counter uh, the the damage that these rumors did. That brought her closer to the new regime, the free officers regime. She owed them. But also the the free officers were seeking the support of the public figures. The free officers in their early days, they were a bunch of young officers aside from Mohammed Nagib. They are not known. They wanted to reduce themselves to the public. They wanted to uh, assure that they are supported by the public. And they used the artists. As, uh, so it was kind of sort of mutual benefits. Those artists who were uh, in fast changing uh, regime, there is some uncertainty, while the regime, the new regime needed also publicity. So Laila Murad definitely um, got the support of the, the new officers regime and she lent her voice to support the, the, the free officers. Her feeling towards um, the, the, the July uh, revolution or coup and her support to the free officers in the early days, I think it, it was very much unconditional, I would say, because the last long interview she gave to the Egyptian radio in late 1970s, she talked about uh, her touring Tahrir Square, uh, lip singing uh, nationalist songs in uh, a converter while actually microphones were having her voice. And she said this is some of her highest point of her career. So uh, in late 1970s, she, I mean, she was completely detached from uh, that period and the free officer regime changed, already replaced by Sadat. And so it was not like, she, she was not gaining something except she's really speaking of her own feeling, I would say. I have a couple more questions and one is very much about Let's let's call it the the second half of her life. So, Lila eventually became pregnant, and this was a pregnancy that had uh, also a lot of social 
social political implications. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about her life in the 1950s and how eventually her career came to an end. So this was, uh, would relate actually to the question of understanding the Nazarist state and the concepts of uh, masculinity and how it was re- being reconfigured among uh, the Egyptian public, particularly um, the middle class and uh, the free officers themselves. I make an argument that uh, studying the free officers regime without studying these individuals as masculine, we miss a lot. <laughs> Uh, so uh, during that episode uh, of clearing her out, she got close to uh, the free officer who was responsible, or was working as a lasagne between the new regime and the artist. Uh, his name was uh, Wagih Abaza. Uh, he comes from aristocratic uh, family in, uh, in one of the provinces. Uh, he was handsome. He was young. Uh, he's one of these, the most powerful men in the country. So, um, and she was a third time divorcee with the same, uh, from the same man, Anwar Wagdi. So while she was still negotiating with Anwar Wagdi how to get together uh, officially, not just to appear in public as a couple, uh, she decided to boycott any negotiation with Anwar Wagdi and seemingly she felt uh, more empowered uh, by her relationship with Wagi Abaza. Uh, Wagi Abaza was married of course, and he had many children. And his wife is from his own family. And we have to say that cousin marriage uh, in Egypt is not something horrific. It doesn't sound as it sounds uh, in the West. So uh, he was married to uh, like second degree cousin. Um, it's it's a family, a Baza family. Actually, they like to uh, pretend that they are purely Arab and they don't want to uh, mess their blood with non-Arab pure or someone from outside, but actually also this notion has economic base that these big families want to keep the land ownership in the family. So they they prefer marriage in the family. So it was not easy for uh, Wagi Abaza to upset his wife. And at the same time, uh, we find almost a pattern among many of those young free officers of having relationships with celebrities and princesses many secret marriages, uh, many informal marriages, uh, many affairs happening. And we can understand it that those celebrity women, either artists or uh, princes, they wanted to get support in that fast-changing situation. And at the same time, those uh, young men, they felt part of their performing their masculinity, being attractive, virile, and all these women actually are after them or feeling in love with them. So it's a pattern beyond the Layla Murad and, uh, and uh, Wagi Abaza's informal uh, marriage. Uh, I say informal because it's not documented in the state uh, records. Uh, but everybody knew about the relationship. So it's part of like that sense of masculinity that makes men proud that they have re- many relationships and women are around them or after them or with them. At the same time, as a modern man, you don't want to be polygamous. You don't want to be known as a man who's having more than one wife, uh, because this is something ba- archaic and backward. Uh, and in Wagi Abaza's case particularly, he didn't want to upset his uh, official wife. 
so once Leila Murad got pregnant, uh, he uh, pretty much dumped her. He did not want to recognize the child. Um, it was really kind of heartbreaking for me as a scholar, as a woman, as a mother, to read Laila Murad's statement shortly after she gave birth to her uh, first son, Ashraf Abaza, when she was denying that she had a child. It was really heartbreaking. Like, uh, I believe Ashraf Abaza's birthday is in July, and she would give interviews in August and in December, uh, talking about how it is vicious rumors that people uh, tell her she got married and she had a child because she she did not get married and she did not have a child. She was so scared. And actually, the, that uh, something about the Nasserist state uh, and their sense of masculinity and also the sense of uh, groups, the cronies, it is not one thing. It's There is no central policy, there is no central vision, there is no central decision to retaliate against Laila Murad. Actually, you find it's all about cronies, it's it's Shilla, uh, who's, who's with, with whom in that uh, inner circles. So in 1950, she, she rushed to get married to um, her third uh, husband, uh, Fatina Abdelahab, who's a filmmaker, and she rushed to have a Nasser child. So socially, she would be known as married, she known as uh, having a child, and gradually people would start to say, oh, Layla Murat has children, so without much question, who's the father of who? And she would actually work tirelessly trying to get the ear of, um, uh, of Gamal Abdel Nasser to get his sympathy and to put pressure on uh, Wagih Abaza until uh, one way or another uh, recognized that child. And Ashraf had his birth uh, certificate, Ashraf Muhammad Abaza. Uh, however, he wouldn't actually come out into the Egyptian society as Ashraf Wagih Abaza until the death of his both parents. Um, but something that, um, if we go back to 1950s, that relationship put lots of pressure on Layla Murad, even when she covered herself socially through the, the third marriage and having a second child. Uh, she had breakdown. This is a time, also 1956, that, um, and we go back to the question of Jewishness. Uh, we know 1956, the tripartite aggression against Egypt uh, with the participation of Israel, France, and um, England. Uh, we know here the, the state of Egypt started systematically to evacuate Jews out of Egypt, either Egyptian Jews or uh, non-Egyptian Jews, uh, to evacuate them. And uh, and also some Jewish males faced detention. So th- there was since lots of uncertainty among Egyptian Jews. And for the case of Laila Murad, who she herself converted to Islam and some of her siblings also converted to Islam, but the uncertainty is there. Definitely. And some of them did not convert. And some of her siblings actually left the country uh, fearing uh, what what could happen to them. So she was facing lots of pressure. So she had breakdown and she had to be hospitalized. So she had to be away from her career for some time. Even in 1953, before 1956, she, she was arrested in a gambling case, which was really pathetic thing to retaliate against her. It was not against her. Well, if, you, if you 
gambling is illegal, but um, the, the person who would be tried, the person who opened their own place for illegal gambling for fees. So players themselves, th- there is nothing. But she was arrested. She was trialed. The case was, of course, dismissed against her. And even against uh, the person who hosted uh, the game, there is no evidence that that was uh, illegal gambling. There were a bunch of women playing cards in, in a private uh, home. So she was really under huge pressure because of her relationship with Wagih Abaza, what's going on uh, to her um, like relatives or... Um, family who were still Jews uh, during this uncertainty, she had a breakdown that took her away from her career for some time. When she tried to come back in early 60s, uh, there are lots of change, of course, in the industry. And by the time that she was ready to go back, we know that uh, the public company that uh, had big portion of the cinema production, now owned by the state, and run by one of Wagih Abaza's cronies or one of Wagih Abaza's friends, uh, Abdel Hamid Buda Sahar, who actually would talk about it openly. And he was kind of sort of uh, writing in his own memoir. So I'm taking it from him. Uh, Abdel, uh, Abdel Hamid Buda Sahar, like uh, Turkish producers would come to Egypt and tell him, let us make movies. Uh, Egyptian Tur- Turkish production, and we would like to have Laila Murad, and he would actually uh, consider it a joke, uh, like uh, dismiss it, and he says, "Oh, you don't know that this, these are old days." And, and uh, Laila Murad herself later would say how many times she tried to go to him and convince him to to produce movies uh, for her with, like. Definitely the only way to, for me to understand uh, the dismissal that is his relationship with Wagih Abaza. Something also played role definitely in ending her career was the reluctance of some uh, producers and distributors uh, after the, the rumors, the false rumors about her connection with alleged connection with Israel. Although that uh, she survived that crisis, she appeared, she made movies uh, after that, including uh, one movie that she produced herself. But we know that there are so many movie projects, even publicized in the press, that she would appear in and then uh, didn't uh, materialize. And the explanation that many Arab producers actually were concerned that uh, what if we take the movie to this, to Syria and then uh, the Syrian market, which is a big part of the movie market, did not allow it? Or what if the Arab public uh, in Syria or somewhere else did not uh, still have any doubt? So there was something also uh, con- in that way contributed to the, end, the untimely end of her cinema career. But she continued to make uh, songs, and the Egyptian radio, and this is again something about the Egyptian state, the Nasrist state. I talked about the company of the cinema, but actually the Egyptian radio always opened doors to Laila Murad and treated her in the special category of artist. So that's not even the first year, it's above the first year. They treated her the same uh, level that they treated Om Kulsum, the exceptional uh, vocalist in the Arab music. So they treated her on that level. If 
financially. And when I look at um, radio programs, all radio stations broadcasted Leila Murat songs throughout 1960s, uh, more than once a day, each station. I have one last question, but let me introduce it. Um, so let me move to Israel. Now, Israel did not have a Hebrew-speaking TV until 1967. In fact, there was only one channel, and this was broadcasting about you know a few hours a day. And at some point, uh, they began to broadcast uh, uh, Arabic movies, and this became a, an institution. They were called, uh, you know, sort of a Friday movie, which were obviously in Arabic. And amongst the most popular were indeed those of Leila Murad. That also connects the dots, you know, between sort of a, the a Jewish-Egyptian migration from Egypt into Israel, and of course, uh, uh, you know, at large, Arab Jews were sort of... A, uh, fancy the movies of Laila Murad, and also they saw a connection with her. The question of um, uh, her conversion to Islam was never debated. However, back to Egypt in 1995, when she died, uh, and you point out this in the book, one of the most important Arab uh, um, celebrity magazine, uh, Al Kawagib, uh, basically uh, titled She Lived as a Muslim, Died as a Muslim and buried in the Muslim cemetery, bringing back the question of her conversion to Islam. And, you know, I was just wondering how Laila is remembered today and why is her conversion to Islam still a debated issue? Okay, I would like to say it is not a debated issue. It is talked about issue, which is different. Uh, I say it is not debated because there is no doubt that uh, she converted to Islam and no doubt that uh, she was in the side of the Arabs, the Palestinians, and she was Egyptian. Uh, but it, it's, uh, so it's not debated. There is no evidence whatsoever otherwise. But they talk about it a lot. And this is actually uh, probably the entire project. This was a start point. As a big fan of Laila Murad, uh, even before I came to the academia, I was so annoyed in 1990s. People start to talk a lot about uh, her Jewishness and, and her conversion. And when I would ask my mom, she said, oh, yeah, well, well, well. I mean, my mom is her generation. This is a generation of audience that consumed the Laila Murad when it was in the theater, not my generation that we consumed it through the TV and radio. She said, yeah, that's not an issue. What's, 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 what's up? What's going on? This is for my mom's. But for my generation, it became like everybody's talking about it as kind of sort of an issue. And this was the beginning of that research project. Why Egyptians cared about that issue? If, and, and you find sometimes like these big headlines, would Laila Murad go out to Israel? Would, was Laila Murad Muslim? And then you find everything in the story confirming that Laila Murad will never go to Israel and she's a real Muslim. So when I start to piece things together and to put it in chronological order, I, my conclusion was that people talk about, Laila, they use Laila Murad to give a narrative of their own, they talk about themselves very much. They talk about what they imagine about Egypt and the Egyptian past and their imagination also for the Egyptian future. So the question about like, it's not only about her religion that's uh, used, but, but this is the most focal point. Uh, they talk also about that elegant 
performer who lived in uh, the the elegant neighborhood um, Garden City, downtown Cairo, and how her persona on the screen speaks of the time of that uh, when Egypt was tolerant, was clean, was uh, people were respected one another, and all these imagination things. And people who want to talk uh, anti-Nasser, they say, uh, the cinema became garbage because of the Nasserist policies. Look, they ended the career of Laila Murad. And so there are so many issues that Laila Murad is used uh, and uh, when Egyptians talk about her. But definitely her conversion is an issue. So to put it in a chronological order, in late 1970s, after Sadat visited Egypt, this is a time that actually a huge celebration of the Egyptian cinema was set up with the sponsorship of the state or institutions my affiliated with the state. And they started to give medals to the pioneer or the big names of the Egyptian hist- uh, cinema and music uh, history and included many Jews. Uh, Togo Mizrahi was in the list, Laila Murad was in the list, uh, Dawood Hosni was in the list, and many uh, programs in the, the state's radio and TV will talk about the contribution of Egyptian Jews to the cinema, particularly Dawood Hosni, Togo Mizrahi, uh, etc. So this is a time, actually, I'm, I'm making an argument that the state was using Laila Murad and the Egyptian Jews to facilitate the culture of peace, uh, kind of sort of ended the otherness between the Jewish, the Jewish population of the Jewish state and uh, people of Egypt. And this is a time that uh, Laila Murad actually was giving a big chance to speak about her career in the Egyptian radio. Um, then, uh, and also the, the, the state published a beautiful book, Rihlet uh, Hubbu with Laila Murad by uh, an important intellectual. And then actually the, the who picked, up, picked it up in 1980s was the Egyptian press in diaspora or the, the Egyptians in the, in the diaspora working for the Arab press. They, once the peace agreement with Israel was concluded, we find uh, Egyptian journalists publishing uh, who are against the agreement, publishing stories in the Arab press outside Egypt, uh, quoting Laila Murad, talking about her conversion and quoting her how much she's disgusted by Israel and she will never go to Israel. So here, everybody was using uh, Laila Murad to facilitate their point about the relationship with Israel. And particularly, the anti-normalization camps in Egypt were always doing this. So to, to use Laila Murad as a role model, why you end the normalization with Israel, why Laila Murad actually did not choose them, choose us. And over time, Laila Murad became like a prize. We won Laila Murad. So when Egyptians actually question, uh, the, the, you have this headline saying, uh, was Laila Murad go to Israel? Was Laila Murad a real Muslim? And then you find the entire story confirming, no, she was a good Muslim. She was a good Egyptian. She would never, it's like we won Laila Murad because the state of Egypt continue its agreement with Israel, not listening to the Egyptian public or having a real in-the-house conversation about the normal, the, 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 the nature of this agreement or how the um, normalization would be unflinched 
only when the Palestinians get their rights. You don't have this conversation among Egyptians. So out of frustration with the Egyptian state, continuing relationships with Israel, people would use Laila Murad as a, a prize. Like, we want Laila Murad. Laila Murad is with us. And the, 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 the process actually would continue to the extent I would see it until today. It's not only that. It went beyond that. It was, I see kind of sort of also, like also the Islamization of the Egyptian society uh, with uh, during the last few decades because of the political Islam. I see kind of sort of ethnicization of being Egyptian. So being Egyptian, it means you are Muslim. And you can be Egyptian only if you are Muslim. And you are a good Muslim because you are Egyptian. And Layla Murad has always used that. She's she's Muslim because she's Egyptian. She's Egyptian because she's a Muslim. So there's kind of sort of a process of creating a formula for the Egyptian is. And that formula actually excludes uh, non-Muslims. Of course, recently, uh, the question about the Egyptian Jews or celebrating the legacy of Egyptian Jews uh, is coming back. But it doesn't contribute actually to the question of that Egyptian could be non-Muslims because the question is not uh, raised for other groups like Baha'i, for example. It's not, it's not used. While, yes, now there is a good celebration of the legacy of the Egyptian Jews, but the Egyptian Jews is a past that's not going to ever reverse. But what you can do now is equal citizenship for all Egyptians, regardless Egypt, uh, regardless religion, which means the Egyptian, non-Muslim Egyptian groups now in Egypt, like Baha'is, like Copts, uh, different uh, different. Uh, Christianities, uh, non-believers, uh, agnostic, atheists. You can't say that this question of cit- equal citizenship to those who are not embracing Islam fullheartedly is really well established in the Egyptian society. Don't mention the state that uh, prosecutes everybody, <laughs> Muslims and non-Muslims. This was Hanan Ahmad, author of Unknown Past, Laila Murad, the Jewish Muslim star of Egypt published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Hanan, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Robi.